Hi, welcome to Hello Dogtown. Um, this is a podcast about youth hel- homelessness. Robin's here and I'm with my co-host, Helen. Good afternoon. Awesome. And we are here with Earl Edwards. We're so excited to be talking to you today. And I'm sitting down with you in this Zoom room, I guess, uh, to talk about the intersection of homelessness and schools. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Um, I, I've watched a couple of the uh, podcast episodes, so it's an honor to be on and i um, excited to have the conversation. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, cool. Helen, do you want to kick us off with some of your the first questions or what? And let's just get into the topic. Can you just go ahead and just tell us about yourself and your research and how has your experience informed your career and the work you do currently? Yeah, so um, so I'm a, currently a doctoral student at the Graduate School of Education at UCLA um, and the Urban School Division. And I'm a fifth year. Uh, prior to going to get my uh, doctorate, I was uh, a teacher. So I taught in schools, have a master's in um, public school leadership, uh, and um, really kind of came into the program um, trying to do like mentoring programs uh, for kids in community colleges. And one day my advisor, um, Tyrone Howard, um, asked me to do a project um, proposal on students' experience of homelessness. And it was something that, you know, kind of was random. Um, he randomly asked me and then I started doing the work and, and realized how little I knew about it. Um, I didn't never did heard about the uh, the policy they had in place called McKinney Mental Homeless Assistance Act, and I was just thinking as a teacher I never heard about this as um, as my training to be a, become an administrator I never heard about it, and it really hit me personally because I actually experienced homelessness when I was growing up, uh, so I actually was um, homeless by the McKinney Mental definition for about six years um, growing up moved about I don't know like you know seventeen to like twenty times before I was like twenty one years old. Um, lived in living rooms, uh, motels, um, shelters, um, and then sometimes when I wasn't didn't want to be with my family, I would be like you know just couch surfing with friends or staying on buses. Um, I was back on the East Coast, so buses uh, ran a little late. And while I had those experiences as a child, I never connected them um, when I was actually in the classroom. And so I decided to make them that my topic for my dissertation to really make sure that. We're making more awareness about student homelessness and the impact it has on the academic outcomes, but also on their overall life outcomes later on. Uh, because my experience, experiencing homelessness, definitely still shapes kind of how I see the world and also different anxieties I have um, growing up. Mm. Wow, fascinating. Um, can you explain to us then, you know, the McKinney Vento Act? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so. McKinney Vento was actually um, established in uh, 1987. So the, the year I was born, this, this policy was, was established um, to really um, start addressing homelessness. This is the first uh, major policy um, the federal government uh, had for homelessness. And it, went, it was broad. It went for um, all people who were experiencing homelessness. And part of it was geared at uh, students and, uh, and children that were experiencing homelessness. So what the McKinney Mental did is actually define um, homelessness as um, anyone that doesn't have uh, uh, a constant nighttime residence. And that included um, living on the streets, uh, living in shelters, living in motels, 
but also included um, doubling up. So living with other family members temporarily as uh, any, anybody temporarily as a result of um, a financial crisis and not having your own place to stay. And the reason why they included that is because we, we know when people are doubling up, one, they're not, um, they're not on the lease of wherever they're staying at. And two, that they can be um, asked to leave at any given moment because they, um, they don't have control of the space. And it becomes really even more challenging when you're thinking about working class families that don't necessarily own a home because mm-hmm. now a landlord can decide and say, you know, you have someone staying with you that's not on your lease. Now both of those families can now be evicted. Um, so it creates a lot of stress um, and it's very, very hard for a child to be able to navigate that space and still be able to focus on school, um, in a school environment. So the Beginning Mental Home Assistance Act um, provides a couple of rights that um, kids have. So for example, one is you get to stay at the school of origin that, you, um, that you're a part of. So if you was at a school and say um, you were living in um, you know, Venice um, and you came displaced and now you're now staying in Compton, um, the school district is now responsible for getting you transportation to the, your original school of origin. Hmm. Um, they have, have the resources to actually do that for you. Um, whatever foods that the school has, you have the right to. Um, whatever, like, you know, if you need additional tutoring or counseling as a result of your displacement, um, they're responsible for providing that for you as well. Um, in addition, if you decide that you have to move because it's too far and it's not feasible for you to stay at that school, you can enroll immediately. Uh, you don't have to bring in the, the traditional like paperwork or like immunization forms to enroll in that school, just so to make sure that you don't fall out of school as a result of waiting for you know uh, all the paperwork to come in. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And and you know my understanding too is that the McKinney Vento definition is pretty broad compared to maybe some other definitions. Um, at least that's what we talk about when. You know, I've heard like in discussion of, um, you know, the homeless count versus what they like estimate in schools, it could be really different um, because of these definitions change, um, which I think broad is good. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah like the homeless count, like for example, um, you get like a youth count of like 5,000. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then the actual um, LA County number would be closer to 50,000. Um, yeah. Um, students. Kids that doubling up represent about seventy eight percent of that at that number. Wow, that's I didn't know that stat. That's that's pretty significant. Can you just like describe like what does homelessness look like in schools? Like how does that look like? Yeah, so you know I think um, it's homelessness is a very very. Uh, broad experience. It has so many different um, facets to it that, um, that too often we try to kind of lump it into all, all but one thing. As an individual experience, like multiple, you know, housing arrangements while experiencing homelessness, I can say that it dramatically changes depending on, on the circumstances. So for example, um, doubling up. Um, some, some, some families' um, structures are set up in a way where you can stay with somebody and everything worked out perfectly, right? The, the whole household works as one unit and everyone feels kind of connected to it. Um, another example could be you're staying with somebody, but the power dynamics are very unbalanced. So for example, um, when I was experiencing homelessness, I had to stay with my cousin. Um, my cousin was probably in her um, 
early 30s, uh, late 20s. And my mom raised my, my cousin. So it was a very, very weird dynamic because now um, we had to listen to my cousin um, rules in terms of like when we had to come in the house, like what, when, when dinner was going to be. Um, and my mom was playing it. Mom and dad was playing in a weird dynamic because they didn't know how to kind of navigate that space. Um, so that's a very different context in terms of how it's going to affect people in school. Because what happened to me was I just didn't, I didn't go home often. I stayed at my friend's house because I didn't want to stay in this crowded space, uh, which led to me getting in a lot of trouble. Um, and also led to me like, you know, kind of falling through the wrong crowd sometimes. Um, living in a motel, you don't have, you don't have a, a, a kitchen. So the quality of food you have is very, very limited. Um, you're using a small microwave um, and that's really all you have. So, you know, when I was experiencing that, I was just eating, you know, like uh, raviolis or like, you know, one single, you know, single box pizzas uh, for, for lunch and dinner. And that wasn't a, a, a high quality meal. In addition to living with you know, multiple brothers in like one hotel room. Uh, staying in the shelter was different. Um, it was, um, it was lack of, a lack of privacy. So everyone's problems were, were your problems, like you were saying in the family shelter. Um, and it also had restrictions in terms of time. So like I played sports when I was in high school um, I had friends that were on different sides of, of, um, of where, I, where I used to stay in um, Brockton, Massachusetts, and we had a curfew. So I had to try to rush home in order to get to the curfew so I didn't break the curfew and my family had the consequences of me potentially being kicked out of, of the family shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also like enter access and having opportunities to do my work. Uh, it was only like an hour or two where we had time to use the, the common computer. Um, so if I couldn't get my work done during that time period or someone else was doing it, um, I wasn't be able to turn in my homework that day. And so then I'll go to school and I'll try to like, you know, pretend I wasn't experiencing homelessness and try to come up with lies, um, that would, that would make it harder for me to actually uh, focus in school because I was so concerned of what kind of lie can I make up that makes sense. So no one will ask me kind of where I'm staying or what's going on in my, uh, my home life. So you know, all the, it varies greatly depending on um, when, what kind of living context you are, you're in, and also what age you are. Um, because as I got older, it became like more of a matter of, yeah, my family is living in a shelter, or my family's living in a hotel, but I'm kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. Wow, fascinating. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing uh, your experience. Uh, you know, it seems like it really obviously informs, it, it just makes the depth of this conversation so, uh, so, so much more deep, I guess. Um, and, you know, I, you, you're currently a doctoral student and you decided to study this subject. Um, what are some things that are, you know, what are you getting into specifically? You mentioned looking at kind of the outcomes that might be related to this and, and maybe, yeah, just give us a little bit of a, a framing of what, what questions you're dig- digging into on the broader context. Yeah. So I, I think, um, Oftentimes, researchers really focus on the deficit and the negative, and mm-hmm. we have a lot of a lot of literature. You know, even um, kind of thinking about just the conception of when we start talking about homelessness. So, you know, homelessness, how we talk about it now, really, um, really established in the nineteen seventies and eighties. Um, before that, homelessness was very, very different. It was um, usually older white men um, that had pensions staying in like single room occupancies and they were disconnected from their family. And um, that's why they was called homeless. They didn't have, they weren't connected to the actual immediate family. 
it didn't start changing until the 70s and 80s where a lot more um, black um, and Latino folks were experiencing homelessness, a lot more families were experiencing homelessness and they were starting living on the streets. So it's a relatively new term in terms of how we even talk about it. And a lot of the research that, that started this work was only getting funded by um, around like mental health. So we had the stigma around who was experiencing homelessness and that's still around today. Uh, when we talk about schools, we always talk about, you know, kids failing and kids not doing well, kids missing school. And including my research is really focusing on what happens when, um, what conditions allow students to experience homelessness to graduate? Um, what allowed them to go on uh, with, uh, within their, you know, their careers and their um, overall life path? Um, after experiencing homelessness and looking at it from an asset perspective and to try to really understand what are the systems that they, they're mm-hmm. establishing either formally or informally that's allowing them to actually um, have more opportunities for uh, success and how can we learn from that? In addition to that, um, looking at what are the structures that schools uh, have in place in addition to the communities they're actually building around to best support um, students who are experiencing homelessness. So really looking at it from a structural perspective in terms of what are the, the structures we need to have in place to better support students experiencing homelessness, but then also recognizing that, um, that students and also their families um, have, um, have a lot of resiliency and are already advocating for themselves and, and building up systems to best support themselves. And to try to figure out how can we make those systems that they're building more formalized so they have more resources and more people can take advantage of them. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's exciting. That's great stuff. I, um, well, Helen, do you want to ask the next one? Sorry. I had, I have a question that we can table till later after. I'm just curious on how like the pandemic has impacted students. Yeah. So, um, I haven't talked to a lot of, um, a lot of students during this time period just because, um, the access is not as easy. Um, but I know just, through different um, different mediums in terms of like reading things and um, listening to different like discussions, some of the biggest biggest challenges are um, one is relationships, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of kids see school as an opportunity to retreat and to have um, an opportunity to kind of get away from um, their experiences of um, um, homelessness and also the instability of it. And a lot of times, school is or is the most stable place that they have in their life. Um, so not having school uh, becomes a very, very challenging thing. Um, another big part of it is that because we haven't had formal school, a lot of relationships with teachers and, and, and adults at school have diminished. And mm-hmm. it happened a lot of conversations and a lot of um, opportunities for them to actually talk to each other and talk to, um, talk to adults to kind of get them motivated and kind of keep them, um, keep them going. So. I know that was uh, one of the big challenges in terms of the lack of communication they have in the schools and the meaningful relationships they establish and how those relationships are still um, being maintained. Um, that's one big challenge. Another big challenge is just the feasibility of trying to learn in, um, in opportune uh, conditions in terms of not having you know, Wi-Fi, not having um, a common space where they can actually study and do work, um, especially when you have multiple siblings who are staying in one place. Like for example, um, if you're staying in a living room, everyone has school at the same time, who, who's, who's getting prioritized in terms of the, the computer? Who's getting prioritized in terms of who's gonna be quiet while so-and-so's lessons going on? Um, if, if families are working and parents are working, 
who's helping to set that up for the younger kids that, um, that don't necessarily have someone at home and parents have to work um, because they're not getting enough support financially to stay at home with their kids during this time period. Um, what ends up happening is a lot of those um, decisions become um, the responsibility of the individual child, especially when the school is not communicating and not building those relationships. And they either check out in terms of um, opt out of the learning uh, opportunities at school, or they're not able to actually fully be present when they're actually trying to learn. So I think when we're moving forward uh, with, um, with COVID and schools will be opening, it's very, very important that there's better communication and we actually know the needs of the students that we're actually trying to teach. Um, another big thing is just food, right? And, and just nutrition and having actual food and nutrition that they can actually rely on and not, and not be a surprise in terms of when they're going to be able to get the next meals. Um, schools are providing some resources, but if you're not reaching out to the families and making them feel comfortable getting those resources, then some of the most vulnerable families may not be getting those, uh, those resources and food and opportunities. Yeah. Oh my God. There's so much there. And, you know, I think like with the school closures, a lot of the stuff that we've been hearing or it's been in conversation is how, um, I mean, just with the whole pandemic, but how different, you know, it's not impacting everyone the same way. Right. Um, there's a disproportionately impacting, um, you know, families that are low income or, you know, are unstably housed, um, families of color too, as well. And, um, I don't know. And I just, you talked kind of about going forward, but are there solutions or things that you think that would be important as we know, going into, I guess soon you closed currently, or they won't open, Mm -hmm. um, as we know at any point, um, anytime soon, or at least LAUSD is what we're talking about. Yeah. Like what, what can, what would be good to support? You talked about the communication, but are there other things? Yeah, and I think, I think the relationship piece is mm-hmm. one of the things that we talked about the least. And everyone's so, um, so fast to try to figure out how can we like, you know, create you know, online programming for kids to learn math and to learn these different things. And they're not spending enough time on how we're gonna make sure that our kids are having opportunities to talk to us to kind of debrief and, and to be able to talk and, and figure out what's going on um, and have a stable person outside of their immediate family that they can talk to and feel comforted by. Um, I think that's a really, really important part because yeah, we know great. toxic stress. Uh, one of the reasons why toxic stress happens is because your body is dealing with things that you alone can't help to bring down. And if you don't have enough people um, around you to kind of help regulate that for you, um, then you just continue to have that toxic stress that drains you um, and, and makes it very, very hard for you to function um, regularly. And so if we're not having um, inserting people into these spaces to be able to do that, then we're not going to be in, the, in a situation to actually help those um, individual kids learn. And in addition to that, um, going deeper is better, right? So like rather than um, teachers trying to create these dynamic curriculums um, and every teacher is doing it themselves, they should be coming together and trying to figure out how can we combine our humanities or social studies class with ELA so that now they only have one, one, one class to go to instead of these two classes and they're doing high quality reading, um, writing activities, and then connecting that to the, their, their world 
and having that be a humanities type of class rather than like English and social studies. Mm. That way, deeper um, and not have to worry about having that child have to do so many different activities um, and try to keep up with so much. So instead of trying to figure all that stuff out, really kind of start simplify the learning to really make sure the essential core concepts in terms of the critical thinking, the reading, the writing, um, the math, and, and connected to science is happening. And then spending the rest of the time supporting those children and making sure that their needs are being met by calling in and checking what they need and being able to have the avenues provided for them. And also just checking in on them so they know that you know people will care about them. And after this is over, um, they're going to go to a place where people are going to be supportive of them in person as well. Yeah, that's great. And what about how like teachers or social workers can identify homeless students as it's often hidden? Yeah. So I think, um, this is like always like tricky because, um, whenever I do like trainings, um, with, with schools, they always want to know like, all right, so what are the, what are the signs that mm-hmm. we pick out for a kid that's experiencing homelessness and like it seems like they expect me to say oh well you know if they're wearing dirty clothes and if they smell really bad like you know that's the homeless kid um and the reality is you know people who are experiencing homelessness we're we're not trying to show you that we're experiencing homelessness right we're doing our best to um to fit in as much as we can and to have a regular social social life um the best way for you to be able to identify uh, if a student's experiencing homelessness is by talking to them uh, building a relationship, allow them to have some opportunities and time for informal conversation with you. Um, so if they did have something to share, they have the opportunity to share it. And also knowing the McKinney mental definition and the resources that come with it. Um, mm. Most times teachers don't know the McKinney mental definition. So um, you might be talking to a kid and they're saying, yeah, you know, right now we're seeing my auntie. Um, I think next week you're probably going to stay with my uncle. And you have no idea that they're telling you that right now we don't have a permanent place to stay. And instead of interjecting and saying, oh, well, you know, our district has actually resources for you to make sure that if you need transportation or if you need you know, extra, extra tutoring during that time period, we can help you out with it. Um, instead of using that as an opportunity to kind of talk about that and provide the resources that can be under McKinney Minto, most teachers just don't know that exists and they just kind of carry on and, and kind of forget about it. Um, that's an opportunity for us to really be able to kind of identify who is experiencing homelessness and provide them with the resources. And I always say like the most important thing is not necessarily the identification part, but really meeting the conditions that are impeding their learning. So if you're doing, if you're a good teacher, you're always trying to figure out what are the barriers my kids are having in order to, um, in order to learn a material that I'm actually trying to teach. And if you um, are serious about that, you're trying to figure out and make sure that anything that you can do to really um, accommodate the opportunities for kids to learn, you're taking advantage of. And too often, uh, we, we lose that when we work online and when everything's a kind of like a presentation or something like that. We kind of lose that connection. And it's important to have that and also be informed when it became mental so you can pick up on those cues and, um, and, and insert opportunities and, um, and resources for them when they need them. That's yeah, that's great. Um, you know, I have some, so my questions to thinking about the pandemic, um, you know, are, 
I think like as we go into it and schools closures and all those things, you know, we're running the risk of people being really disconnected from their education and their stable place for, for potentially a long time. And, um, you know, what, what might be like the, the impact of that, like both in terms of like a learning process versus, you know, you said that 50,000 young people in LAUSD are, um, no, LA County. LA County. It's still about 50,000 children, you know, okay. that, that are really at, um, at a real serious risk from potentially being really impacted if, if we don't, you know, kind of adjust in the ways that you're suggesting, um, adjust curriculum, adjust, we, you know, build relationships. Um, yeah. What, you know, what could be the impact of all those children, young people um, falling through the cracks, I guess? Yeah, as, mm-hmm. um, so one thing that we, we see happening now is that um, the, the wealthier uh, families with more resources are creating and designing learning opportunities for, for their kids. They're creating pods mm-hmm. where they're hiring um, teachers to come in to do distant learning with a, a few of their neighbors or their friends to make sure that they're not losing, like their kids aren't losing any learning opportunities. And, um, and so we're going to see um, potentially a huge gap in terms of um, learning opportunities for our most vulnerable students and our wealthier and more, um, um, more affluent um, families and students. So I think that's something that's, that's definitely already happening and is going to be exacerbated by, by this process. Um, however, I, I think we have to think about this as children overall life. Mm-hmm. And not think about it from a, a, a standpoint of because a lot of times schools and like educators talk about achievement gaps, and the problem with an achievement gap is that it only captures a year worth of knowledge. And we say, oh, you know, we do a snapshot and say this is the gap that these these kids have at this age, but we have to think about it more for, more long term. So, for example, for me, uh, when I was in high school, I was reading at probably like a sixth grade, a like sixth grade level. So I was in like tenth grade reading at like a sixth grade level. Um, very, very far behind, you know, if, if someone would have sent to the snapshot of my like, achievement gap, it would have been massive. Um, however, I was able to do well because I had opportunities to continue my learning and to, to make it to college and to then fill those gaps. And because I was at a point where later on in life where I had more autonomy over myself, I was able to fill those gaps later on. But if someone would have just saw me at that at that point in tenth grade and said, you know what, it's too late, it's nothing we can do about it, you know, mm-hmm. it's too big, um, then you know my life outcome would be very very different. So I think we have to really look at it as we have to make sure that the kids are that our kids are not leaving this year more traumatized and not feeling protected, and that being our primary goal rather than us trying to figure out how we're going to close this achievement gap because it's going to exist, it's going to happen. But more importantly, what's going to happen in the next two or three years to really make sure that those kids feel like, all right, someone actually cares about me when I go back to school. And I know I'm going to have to work a little bit harder, but I know I have caring people that are actually going to guide me through that process. Very, very different than having um, this opportunity where people are trying to force me to learn material that's very, very challenging over, over a Zoom uh, conversation and all over the phone. And then it comes back the next year expecting me to learn that material and kind of just push forward. So I think it's really important that we look at the relationship part of it, really stabilize our kids 
um, really make sure that we're focusing on the most deep parts of their learning and most comprehensive parts. So when this is over, we can really come into the school year with strong relationship with the kids and really try to push them um, for more rigorous um, work um, the next year. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So that article that I read was from U.S. News, and I'm not sure, you know, like the liability of, you know, the context of what it shares, but, you know, and I was reading it and it was based on like students experiencing homelessness and, and some of the information that was shared there was like more than 1.5 million children experienced homelessness during the 2017-2018 school year and an 11 increase over 2018-2019 school year with like the biggest increase coming from students living in unsheltered situations such as living out of their car, living in the street, living in parks. And it was just shocking because it also mentioned that California undercounted the number of students experiencing homelessness by 37% during the 2017-2018 school year. And it just, it was disheartening to read that just because I feel like we're overlooking, you know, the most vulnerable students and, you know, like how, how can we help, you know, how can we advocate and how can the community be involved and how can we invite the community to, you know, bring awareness and shed light to, you know, not only homelessness, but, you know, the dis, I know earlier you mentioned something important, like it's not just them being homeless and being going to school, but like the different circumstances that's happening in their, in their households, like no easy access to food or healthy food, you know, like juggling being a person of color, juggling, you know, being LGBTQ, like all of that, it's just really important to mention. And I just want to know how the community can really come together and really, you know, like I mentioned, just shed light to this crisis. Yeah, no, yeah. And I think um, it's very important when we look at this from an intersectional um, perspective, right? Because um, Black people are the most disenfranchised um, group and have the highest disparities when it comes to homelessness in terms of their general population and, and their um, population within the homeless, um, homeless community. And so, um, and also um, we know LGBTQ um, folks also have um, very high, um, high, high rates of family, of individuals being, um, being homeless, especially individuals being homeless by themselves. Uh, um, and so it's very important that we keep that information in, um, in mind when we're talking about this because that context really matters. And I think when it talks about community, it's very important that we bring in different community organizations that are actually doing the work and have them working in conjunction with schools. Um, I go to a lot of outreach centers and talk to them about their relationship with their local schools and school district, and most of them don't have a relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, most of them say, oh, well, you know, some, a lot of our kids come from the school district, but you know, we don't really necessarily, um, you know, have a, have a connection with them. Um, and a lot of times it's, oh, well, because most of the kids that we have is usually like, you know, 19 plus, so they're not necessarily always in school anymore. Um, but we need to be able to build those strong relationships. But a lot of times if, you, if you're only dealing with 19 year olds or 20 year olds in your outreach um, organization, what's, what's going on with the 17, 16 year olds that are, um, that are displaced and trying to figure things out? 
a lot of times they don't know where to go and they may not have the capital to know how to find um, your different programs. And if they are coming, then um, it's very, very important that you have a relationship with the school district to figure out how can you make sure that that school district is enforcing the McKinney Mental Homeless Assistance Act. Mm-hmm. Um, being an actual, um, how can you leverage your, your positional power to say, listen, if you don't provide these services, then we're going to sue. Because um, most of the things on the McKinney Mental, they only became um, more a uh, higher requirement after, after states and districts have been sued several times. Wow. Uh, so, like, you know, in 1987, it, this wasn't nothing on the McKinney Mental was mandatory. It wasn't until the 90s that a lot of lawsuits started happening, saying, like, kids have been waiting to be in school for, you know, 80 days, and this district is not allowing them to access their learning. Then they started actually having a lot more requirements within this actual policy. So it's very important that community organizations are, are recognizing that and advocating on, on those children's behalf. Um, also, I looked at um, Black students experiencing homelessness, and one thing I found was um, they found Black people to help them navigate through um, that experience to graduate high school. And oftentimes, they had a lot of um, negative um, racial experiences and anti-Blackness happening in their schools. Um, L- L.A. County is very, um, very different from you know 20 years ago in terms of there's no large majority Black school um, in L.A. County for the most part. Is about maybe two or three that have um, higher numbers of black students than any other student population. Uh, most schools, you're not going to find more than 15 to 12 percent um, black populations. So, for a black student experiencing homelessness, um, they're not in the community where, like, you know, they're, they're the majority. And so, like, even like uh, in a black and Latinx school, there's a lot of anti blackness that happens in that space that um, black students have to kind of um, endure and go through. If you look at suspension rates, there's still huge disparities, even when you break it down by Black and Latinx. Um, so, like, there is a different experience happening within that within that context. It's important for us to recognize and understand. Um, but also, it's important to recognize that they find community members that are helping them get through high school. Um, and the point is, we need to identify who are those community partners that we need to have into in, in our conversations together, and how can we pull our resources together to make sure that we're doing the best that we can for the individual students that we're actually working with. Um, that 1.5 million number is, um, is extremely high. However, there's also um, been counts where it's about um, 2.7 million, right? Um, depending on how you do the methodology and also recognizing that it's always an undercount mm-hmm. because we require, we're, we're, we're um, really basing this on homeless liaisons who are at the district level to try to make sure they are able to identify, you know, thousands or hundreds of kids who are at the school level and they don't necessarily have access to the school. Um, they have to hope that the, 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 the family um, writes down in their housing questionnaire that they don't actually have housing. Um, those housing questionnaires are only usually um, um, given out either twice a year or once a year. So if you experience homelessness in November, there's a good likelihood that no one's going to know unless, um, unless, you tell them, unless you tell them. So those numbers are definitely undercounts. Um, and also it's very important to recognize that we're, we're in a housing crisis right now. Yeah. We have a lot of people. Um, I think um, UCLA said it came out and said about um, 500,000 um, L.A. County children um, are at risk of, of eviction. Yeah. Right. So they're at risk of eviction. So this is going to be a bigger problem moving forward. So it's very, very important that we're bringing our community um, partners together 
to really start looking at this in a holistic uh, perspective rather than having it siloed off as it's being students in the school having to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, I know we're, we're right on, you know, if we're thinking about doubling up and living in cars, we're, you know, the, the next stage of the pandemic and support or I don't know, whatever relief or whatever we're calling it. Um, we're only at risk of those, those numbers are just going to jump skyrocket, uh, potentially uh, looking like that's what's going to happen because we're not necessarily getting um, the support that we need. I'm sure they've already gone up. Um, You know, one thing too, I think that we hear a lot about is how schools, you know, public schools particularly are, have really been drained of resources. I know, um, you know, I have two friends in LAUSD and I, you know, I marched with them last year and we striked and, and all that. Um, to get more resources. And, and, you know, they, they did have a negotiation that came out in their favor, but still wasn't enough. I don't, I don't believe in, you know, a lot of the things they were asking for were for more nurses and social workers and that kind of support system that, that, you know, I think you've been talking about. Um, I, I guess like, <laughs> is there anything that the community and members can do to, to continue to, um, you know, there, there's a gap there, a disparity in, in public schools in particular across, um, it's so tied to neighborhoods and income um, in certain geographies. Like, well, how, how can we, I don't know, address that, I guess. Yeah, I, um, there's definitely a huge disparity um, within how much money we're, we're um, allocating for people. Uh, across you know different different cities and different school districts, right? And even looking at LA County in terms of um, Beverly Hills versus here versus um, Culver City, like the the amounts fluctuate um, significantly based on the amount of money that these, those communities have. Um, I think one thing we overlook is that there's so much money um, spent in um, disenfranchised communities. Um, mm-hmm because of all these nonprofit organizations that are, that are located there that are bringing in money. Like there's a lot of individuals that have money and capital within those spaces that we don't utilize effectively. Hmm. Uh, and they're not, they're not working together. There's so much siloing happening within organizations that there's a bunch of money. Um, it's just, these organizations are only working with a small number of, of, of youth or of, of people and they're um, trying to hold on to that number because of their funding um, packages and how many people they're serving. And they're not looking out for the overall community. And, you know, sometimes we get into this, um, this, this complex of like, you know, um, nonprofit complex in terms of we always got more and more nonprofits popping up to, to, to handle a problem. And they're, none of them are doing it. None of them are solving the problem. They're only trying to handle the problem. And a lot of them aren't working together collaboratively to really make sure that that problem no longer exists uh, within within the, uh, within that space in that community. So a lot of it is more about why are our community organizations being held responsible for coming together and working with each other and spending you know um, a couple hours hours a week talking um, talking amongst the community members about who needs help, which of our organizations can actually give that support and help them. And how can we make sure that we have this be a sustainable thing? And is you know there's districts that are able to do it. And there's different um, different districts that are creating these partnerships that are not utilizing their their school funds, but utilizing their community capital to really make sure 
are actually doing more to provide uh, more services and more um, more support for those families. Um, I was a, a I started a mentoring program in South Central uh, a few years back, and uh, we helped um, about like 20, 20 kids get into um, into college, and we spent a total of maybe a budget of like five five six thousand dollars over like a, a five year span. Um, it, it wasn't. We use a public library. Um, I, I know we um, we figured out how how to transport them to different places. We raised money for different things we needed to do. Um, but those kids were able to go to college. We were able to get them scholarships to go to college, all because we had a, a couple of people that were dedicated to helping those kids. Mm-hmm. And we worked to make sure that we got those resources. Um, that is something that a lot of organizations and individuals are doing. It's just not a concerted effort to bring those resources together and to, to better align those resources. So a lot of it is really like community organizations really need to, to step up and say, we need to work differently in order to better support the communities that we're in. Because historically, um, these nonprofits have been in these uh, communities for a really, really long time, and they haven't been um, creating s- systemic changes within those communities to actually resolve the problem. Yeah, I know. It makes me think of Spy, um, you know, the safe place for youth and where it's located. It's like a few blocks from Venice High School, right? Um, and I know it's always been of conversation of how to connect services. And, and I think there's been some things that have, um, there has been some collaboration, but it, it's not enough and not as good. And um you know, I think about this podcast is through the Department of Mental Health Innovations, uh, Innovations too. And part of it is that community collaboration, all those things that you just said of like building, how can nonprofits and orgs work together to share in the support and less, less, less siloing. Um, but, you know, we, there's still so much work to be done there. It's, it's not easy, but um, I don't know that the two things that you just, that program sounds great. You know, I think we just need to, you know, tear the bandaid off and just do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's so great. It, it, it's fun. Uh, I was um, working with the County on homeless prevention for um, um, the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. Within, you know, those apartments that, you know, they haven't, you know, they, they don't talk and yeah. don't have a, you know what resources they have. Right. So we're talking about home prevention and, you know, DMH might have, um, you know, housing assistance uh, funds for a certain type of qualified individual. And that mm-hmm. individual we have, might, be, might have a case manager in DMH that goes to DPSS um, saying that they need support. And DPSS doesn't have it, and they just tell them, no, we don't have it. Instead of knowing what DMH has to be able to say, oh, actually, you qualify for this. Let me connect you over here so you can make sure you get those resources. There's, there's so much silo that they don't even know that there's other resources that actually exist, right? Or yeah. even think about like if families are doubling up, you know, what homeless prevention dollars can they actually take advantage of um, to better support them that they can get from a different county? If uh, as kids experiencing homelessness, I'm sure that there's some trauma and there's some mental health needs. How is EMH stepping in, right? Um, you know, and especially outside of LAUSD because uh, LAUSD has a lot of these relationships. However, they're relative small to the to the population, and also these other districts don't have access to those type of resources. So, how do we spread that out? And make more collaboration and non partnership. I think that's a really important um, conversation that you know, we need to have. Amazing. 
Well, well, innovations too. We'll we'll keep working on this, I guess. And I don't know. I've learned so much today. This is incredible um, and so so important. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Earl, for your insight. It was very um, you know knowledgeable, and it really opened my eyes to you know just the bigger picture of homelessness and in schools, you know, and. I've always mentioned when going to advocate, like something I was always afraid of is just, you know, these children, these young adults going to school, high school, like those are our future. And if they're not being taken care of, like where's our future going? And I think the work that you do and that you study and that you continue to have passion for, you know, it's, it, it, I'm joyous to see what you're doing and, you know, the future endeavors that you have set for yourself, you know? Yeah. Thank you so much for being on with us today. And and everyone will, Errol, do you have anything like to plug or any places that people can follow you or anything? Um, I don't know much with my heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I want to say um, is... Um, I know you have a, a demographic that actually our, our experience in homelessness, our experience homelessness. Mm-hmm. I, I really want to kind of just emphasize that um, it's your experience, your experience with knowledge is extremely important. And there's not a lot of people that have that unique experience. And one of the biggest hurdles is is being able to get the formal you know education and stuff like that. But once you start getting that, um, it opens up. And a lot, a lot of opportunities open up um, once you get once you get past that initial hurdle. I think it's really important that you know we we validate those those experiences and that and that um, and that knowledge because too often we we say oh once you get to this age, twenty two years old, you know everything's shut cut off, and now you got to mm-hmm. figure out like, how you're gonna survive. And you know we need we need more individual lived experience because I think one of the most important things is um, and why I say homelessness, um, particularly you know with a racialized lens and black homelessness, is that this is the most um, disenfranchised community, uh, one of the most disenfranchised communities in our society. And if we can figure out how they're utilizing and mobilizing to, to have success, then we can replicate that for anyone in our society. And we need other individuals that have that experience to really bring, that, bring those voices in formalized spaces in order for them to, um, to really kind of get closer to that goal. And it can't happen with, uh, without having an individual with the lived experience and the knowledge and the know-how to really explain it um, and then get the, you know, the, the book knowledge to um, kind of confirm and also think deeper on the actual matter. Um, so I just want to make sure that everyone knows that this is definitely possible. Uh, one of my friends is a, a experienced homelessness, living in a shelter with him. He's now an uh, artificial intelligence um, engineer at Google um, right now. And um, it's possible. I mean, we're, we're definitely doing it. And a lot of people are experiencing homelessness and are having a lot of success and changing the world. And, it's definitely possible and we definitely need more, more individuals to do it. Amazing. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. And um, we fully believe that. And I think we talk about that on the podcast all the time. And you, But you said it better than I would ever be able to say it. So thank you so much. Well, all right, everyone. Thank you, Dogtown, for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time. podcast is produced by Lensco in partnership with Safe Place for Youth. 
and funded by the Department of Mental Health Innovations 2.